Welcome to the Talks on Law MCLE podcast. Interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now, for the interview. In 2021, cryptocurrencies were used to launder more than $8 billion of criminal money. Today, we'll talk about cryptocurrency, money laundering, and the laws that governments are using to combat crypto money laundering. Hello and welcome to Talks on Law. I'm Joel Cohen. Today we're joined remotely by Alex Zerdin, a former U.S. Treasury official and the founder of a company called Capital Peak Strategies. Alex, thanks for your time and welcome to Talks on Law. Joel, thank you so much for having me. And and yeah, I'm, I'm fortunate to work with a bunch of great organizations and having the privilege of working at Treasury in the past. Alex, today we're talking about cryptocurrency and money laundering, probably not the the poster use case for cryptocurrency, but crypto does have a history with illicit activities. Maybe we could start with a, a quick glimpse back. Yeah, so I think this is the tension and challenge with a lots of new and emerging technologies where the early adapters are both pioneers for illicit uses as well as illicit uses. And I think we've seen that uh, historically, and I think in the financial services space, that is absolutely the case. And so with that, you know, I think there's a lot to cover, but to get a foundation on how cryptocurrencies have used have been used, I mean, I think the first example would be the Silk Road marketplace, which was this darknet market used mostly for the sale of illicit narcotics, um, a couple of murder for hire plots, according to public records. And this occurred in, in 2011, and, and the, the means of exchange, the way that things were bought and sold on the marketplace, was using this nascent, this very early cryptocurrency that we now know very popularly, and that was Bitcoin. But the, the marketplace itself was founded in 2011. Public reports soon emerged about it, and then federal authorities took direct action to arrest the administrator and shut down the marketplace around 2013. So we saw this, you know, I think very negative publicity about cryptocurrencies being associated with this otherwise illicit activity on a darknet market. Um, but that still continued to this day. Um, federal authorities in South Florida most recently took down uh, a darknet market and, and seized about $34 million in proceeds, which is one of the largest takedowns in present value. Um, but that was for uh, identification uh, information, stolen credentials for tens of thousands, if not more people around the world. Um, so this remains a challenge, but I think it is important to have it in perspective that while this is somewhat sensational, it makes for great headlines, makes for great prosecutions, cryptocurrencies, and I know we'll jump into this more, is not the most elegant vehicle for money laundering, for terrorism financing, due to some of the key attributes of it. But again, and I think in popular conception, certainly among regulators and legislators, and definitely within the law enforcement community, there's a, a growing awareness about how cryptocurrencies, digital assets can be misused for illicit purposes. I do want to jump into what makes uh, cryptocurrencies in some ways particularly uh, challenging and in other ways a, a useful tool for money laundering. But why don't we start with a definition of money laundering? You mentioned in your old job or one of your old jobs, combating money laundering was the, the first principle. How did you define money laundering then and how does the government define it broadly now? You know, we hear a lot about what is money laundering. It's popularized in shows like Ozark and Narcos and, and very much, you know, a part of public imagination and, and media interpretation. 
Um, but it, there is a legal definition of it, but there's kind of three simple concepts I think are very useful to frame the conversation. And essentially as a first principle, it's making dirty money go clean and the process by which we do it. So the proceeds of illicit activities ranging from narcotics sales is, is a very large portion of it, but any type of illegal activity or identified legal illegal activity that then uses the financial system to clean the money to make it appear uh, that it is actually from lawful origins or permissible origins, and to use that money as any other currency or any other asset can be used uh, permissibly and, and for investments and other things. So there's three three key steps to distance the origins of the funds to its ultimate destination. The first one is placement. And so that actually means uh, putting the funds into the financial system and to the legitimate and formal financial system. The second is layering. And that's a process of using sometimes unnecessary economic transactions, uh, using multiple different financial accounts, using different types of financial services or activities, and sometimes across different jurisdictions, both domestically and internationally, to obscure the flow of funds to make it harder for law enforcement, for regulators, or for others to trace the origins and destination of these funds. And then once they've been thoroughly layered, the funds are then integrated. And that's the integration, is the process of putting the funds more permanently into the formal economic system, more generally. I'm in the purchase of licit assets. Think about real estate, think about securities, uh, thinking about yachts. Uh, These are all the things that, that money can be used once it is quote unquote clean, can then be used for ostensibly licit purposes um, and is no longer no longer has the, the perceived taint of that underlying criminal or illicit activity. So that's what the arc looks like of those three processes of placement layering integration. You mentioned Ozark, but you know, to to go to a slightly simpler money laundering uh, example, I'll I'll go to Breaking Bad. He's selling meth, he buys a car wash and uses the meth proceeds to juice up the the profitability of the car wash and they're claiming legitimate income. No, absolutely. And I think, you know, the the paradigm, the example for this has been cash intensive businesses. So literally car wash, you know, the 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 metaphor for money laundering is is not lost there. Laundromats as well, but other cash intensive businesses have been a historic typology. But as cash becomes less and less predominant, physical cash um, other methods have been extensively used throughout the formal financial system. Yeah, Alex, you, you mentioned the key ingredient being cash, something that's, if nothing, uh, a fungible item. In this case, cryptocurrency, you alluded to it earlier, may have a, a slight downside or a significant downside in some cases in that it's it's not exactly fungible. It's because every cryptocurrency is registered on blockchain. That's right. And so I think it's helpful maybe to unpack a little bit about what those terms mean and what cryptocurrencies are, right? So the cryptocurrencies are generally tokens or digital representations that are listed on a append-only public and often decentralized database. That's what we're talking about with distributed ledger technology or blockchains. And so I I say those key features because they're all pretty material here. It's append-only. So that means that if it is correctly working, the, the blockchain um, cannot be altered or modified. And so you have this immutable ledger. There is a fidelity to it that exists. Um, it can't be tampered with. It can't be changed retroactively. So you have this permanent record. Um, it's public. And so that means that almost anyone with internet access and uh, can, can view it. And so those are pretty key features and characteristics. 
Decentralized is the other part that no one person, no one entity has absolute control, both to tamper with the protocol or to modify it or to, to take it over or to obscure it and to, and to take it private, essentially. And so for those reasons, those features really don't lend themselves to money laundering or terrorism financing in the corollary because you have this, this set of information, which is normally highly privatized. So you think if I sent you money from my bank account to your bank account, Joel, you know, nobody sees that except for, the, except for us in our, in our banks, and we may work within the same bank. Um, and then there are other forms of value transfer that are even more secretive. A briefcase full of cash. Yeah, exactly. So we could engage in that transaction and no one would see it or have reasons to believe that's what was inside the briefcase of cash. And so we can transact pretty freely that way. Um, but here you have this information, you're putting up very personal, very detailed financial information for the world to see. So while you know the identities of who may be transacting are anonymous or at least pseudonymous, um, in that we don't know fully who that is or who is transacting, the underlying transactional information is out there for the world to see, both good guys and bad guys, but also you know, for law enforcement, for regulators, for blockchain analytics companies to then start to use other verifying information to put those pieces together. So it's a critical source of information that is normally not available to, been not, normally criminals would not want to have that information so publicly available. What is available on the blockchain? Is there a number associated with a particular wallet? Is that what's visible? Or is there some type of uh, number associated with with the location of the wallet? What What's registered on the, on the blockchain? So each blockchain is different. Um, and so some of the larger ones, I mean, you have basic, you have a wallet information, which is a unique identifier, public key, that is um, you know, what that wallet associates it to transact with the with the blockchain and for their counterparties. You have party counterparty information, you have amount of transaction, and then you have a timestamp. Um, some, you know, it can get obviously more complex than that, but some of those key features are pretty interesting to then develop relational and temporal in information and networking analysis to see who is interacting with whom, when, and with what frequency or what volumes. And that's a very rich source of information, uh, of financial data. I mean, I think, again, put in another context, if this, you know, this type of information sitting inside banks is, is highly proprietary, is highly, um, you know, highly guarded. Um, so it's just interesting, a feature of the cryptocurrency ecosystem is having this much information out there publicly. And it's not as simple as saying, well, I'll just create a new wallet for every transaction. It's entirely possible, but then there's just a lot of logistics and complexity that, that goes with it. You have to remember your password, right? There is no IT administrator. This is the nature of decentralization. So I guess we can talk about two parts of it. For self-custodied or, or so-called unhosted wallets, you or I could just create our own wallet uh, and, and, and get one, but then we have to take full ownership of it. Um, and there is really no room for error. Um, there's, I think there was a great report, tragic report, of a gentleman who had forgotten his crypto login information and has hundreds of millions of dollars that are just kind of out there uh, and he's not able to access them. And he doesn't have many more chances to uh, remember his, his password. And so this is some of the, the practical challenges of you could set up all these individual wallets, but the ability to maintain that, and I think a lot of things we take for granted with having an intermediary like a bank taking care of some of the more boring but essential parts on cybersecurity, anti-fraud, the ability to, you know, when you use your credit card to get chargebacks, if you, you know, dispute a charge, that those features aren't 
readily available currently in, in many parts of the crypto ecosystem. So if the financial officer at Apple forgot the password to their reserve account, that money's not gone. They can go to Bank of America or, or City and, and ask for it to be reset. If we're talking about uh, a wallet that you yourself control, you, you may not have that, that luxury. You forget your password, you're out. Certainly. And that's, that's on the custodying side. And then also on the transmission side, you need to be absolutely sure you're sending to the right counterparty. And even one small mistake can direct your funds irretrievably to an unintended party. And that still is the, the current status quo, uh, again, through a large part of the crypto ecosystem, um, which is, you know, again, not without its challenges and creates quite a degree of anxiety when, uh, when transacting um, even just in small amounts. Alex, I want to get into the anti-money laundering policy of the government. I want to talk about how the government is attempting to regulate this. But one last area to, to touch on before, you described how the distributed ledger and the permanence of the blockchain can make money laundering using cryptocurrency uh, undesirable. But meanwhile, it's still happening. How are individuals, how are countries how are oligarchs going about avoiding this? Are there new products out there that we should have our eye on? Yeah, so again, I think there's a, a widespread perception or misperception of anonymity or pseudonymity within the cryptocurrency ecosystem for, for transactions. You know, and again, I think as the countervailing, again, with, with this recent seizure in South Florida with the takedown of a number of, of uh, darknet marketplaces, um, and the retrieval of, again, for instance, the Colonial Pipeline hack uh, ransomware funds that, you know, that, that they are not entirely anonymous, they are not entirely pseudonymous. Um, and there are ways to actually identify the, the users um, of, in, the, in the transactors. But so with that, there's also cropped up a number of cryptocurrency projects so the, that really do put a higher premium on privacy. Um, and so within Zcash, Monero, a couple of other Dash, a couple of other protocols that really do attempt to put an emphasis on uh, truly anonymous transactional activity. These are so-called private coins or anonymous coins? Yeah, you can use, they use a variety of names. Um, and, so, and so that exists. There's also a feature or an additional service called mixing or tumbling. And this is the ability to bring in proceeds from cryptocurrencies, and then you create a private pool, either you do it um, decentralized or you have a service provider that provides it. And so then they return the assets, but in a different form that thereby, both for privacy preserving reasons, but also as part of that money laundering chain that we talked about, puts further distance between the origins of the funds that went in and the funds that come out of the mixer or tumbler. In public reporting, Tornado Cash uh, has, been, has been used uh, for that purpose and has been associated with certain transactions involving a $630 million plus uh, hack, the Ronin hack uh, by the North Korean Lazarus group. And so they've availed themselves of uh, Tornado Cash, although to Tornado Cash's credit, they announced that they will be doing screening against the OFAC uh, US sanctions list for blocked uh, Ethereum addresses that, that attempt to access their services. So it's not a white list, it's the opposite. They're looking for they're only going to be matching them up against specific wallets that have been flagged as bad actors. Certainly. And I think it's a proposition that even some of the most privacy forward or um, regulation averse 
organizations, entities, projects are still willing to embrace, at least to a certain extent, uh, the applicability of regulations, including through sanctions compliance, which is a major step forward. Sure. I mean, I think that's that's an important proposition to recognize. I take your point and then uh, also throw out, well, yes, uh, but North Korea could easily open a new wallet that wouldn't be on that list or might not be on that list uh, right away. No, and I, I think you hit the nail on the head about this, uh, you know, for lack of a better framing, a cat and mouse game that is, I think, consistent with kind of the, the kickoff to our conversation about, you know, how did we get here? How are people pioneering new and emerging technologies? And then how does law enforcement, how do regulators and how do legislators keep up with that? And also the courts, how do they keep up with new and emerging technologies um, and then efforts to evade um, existing legal regulatory frameworks? How about the NFT market? It's not it's not a cryptocurrency. It is a crypto product, crypto art often. Have you seen uh, much of a discussion on the use of NFTs for laundering money, especially now that the volumes of NFTs on some of these platforms are, are in the billions uh, per month? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And so I, I have some thoughts and happy to frame it within the existing anti-money laundering regime. So, I mean, I think that NFTs, non-fungible tokens, this is why we're talking not necessarily about cryptocurrencies, but more broadly about digital assets. Um, you know, they have value and they can be used like uh, physical art to launder money. Um, they, you know, they, they have kind of a certain amount of value that is ascribed by the owner and then a potential purchaser. And that can be quite arbitrary, as we've seen both in the art market and the NFT market. Um, and Congress and regulators have spoken to this. They have increased, seeking to increase regulation of the art market more generally. And Treasury has studied both the formal art market and the non-fungible token market to address money laundering risks. I think for NFTs, they've assessed the, the risk to be relatively low at present. Um, but I think you make the great point that this is an emerging area of concern. We're definitely also seeing fraud. Um, so this isn't necessarily money laundering in the first instance, but the NFT market, uh, like other parts of the crypto ecosystem, um, that there are scammers, there are fraudulent actors that are seeking to um, you know, gain value on, uh, unjustly, and that you know, money laundering can be occurring as some part of that transactional activity or through the use of the NFTs themselves. Maybe we'll discuss it a little bit more as we're talking about regulations. Let's turn the corner into anti-money laundering. Uh, this, as we mentioned, was a part of your professional day-to-day. Uh, -day. Maybe you could shed a little bit of light on the anti-money laundering regime. Yeah, so we have to wind the clock back to about 1970. I'll, do, I'll try to do a brief, brief but intelligible and, and useful uh, context here. So 1970, Congress passes and then uh, President Nixon signs the Bank Secrecy Act, BSA. And unlike its name, um, it actually provides less bank secrecy. It requires banks to share certain client and, and customer information re regarding financial activity uh, because Congress determined that it's of high value for law enforcement and regulators in the course of their investigations. So uh, banks oppose this, uh, civil libertarians oppose this. And there was a Supreme Court case in 1974 with, uh, called Schultz versus uh, California Bankers Association which uh, the Supreme Court upheld the Bank Secrecy Act despite first, fourth, and fifth amendment um, challenges. And so the framework proposition of the Bank Secrecy Act allowing banks to essentially provide the government 
with information about their customers and clients has been upheld and has been expanded over the subsequent 50 years. Uh, in the 1980s, in the midst of the drug war, Congress both um, criminalized money laundering. Uh, is, I think one of the first countries, if not the first, the U.S. to criminalize money laundering. Um, and then it also created enhancements to the Bank Secrecy Act reporting regime about certain amounts of funds um, and, and further kind of created reporting obligations. In 1990, Congress uh, created FinCEN, the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, which sits within the Treasury Department and is an independent bureau to uh, process those reports that are filed by banks and financial institutions and also support law enforcement investigatory efforts. Fast forward to 9-11, and the USA Patriot Act has a number of provisions into it, but one of which expanded the scope of financial supervision and reporting both to address money laundering and terrorism financing risks. And so the Congress also required banks and other financial institutions to file so-called Suspicious Activity Reports, or SARS, which is a detailed um, report to the government about why they think their customer or client may be engaged in potentially illicit activities involving money laundering or terrorism financing or other crimes. Uh, this is a big departure because before some of the other reporting had just been regulatory, if you send over $10,000 or if you hit certain other benchmarks or certain other requirements, you file with the government. This time, this has this uh, element of uh, proactiveness on behalf of financial institutions to determine whether or not uh, potentially illegal activity is occurring within their, uh, within their institution. And, and then Congress uh, passed in 2020 the Anti-Money Laundering Act of 2020, which is another major uh, overhaul of the financial uh, oversight regime that existed for financial crimes um, for AML, anti-money laundering, CFT, countering the financing of terrorism. And so that's the regime in which crypto operates. Um, FinCEN, the, the regulator, greatly expanded its authorities after 9-11 in particular, um, and then was pretty early to its credit, um, this is before I worked there, but to its credit for um, providing guidance on virtual currencies as early as 2013. And so they provided an outline explaining to the cryptocurrency, the very nascent cryptocurrency industry, what some of the rules of the road are, some of the like, uh, particular circumstances for the, the virtual assets industry, the cryptocurrency industry that was emerging. Um, they took one of their first regulatory actions, enforcement actions against Ripple, and has engaged in a number of enforcement actions, as well as providing updated guidance to that 2013 um, publication in 2019. So there, there is a proactive sense within this part of Treasury to address new and emerging technologies, I think really to their credit for a very small organization uh, with very limited resources. Well, without turning this into a, a semester-long course on anti-money laundering, uh, I'm going to skip ahead, I suppose, to let's go to the 2013 uh, guidelines that FinCEN came out with. What was established there in the crypto space? Yes, I mean, I think it, one, really noticed the importance in the viability of the cryptocurrency industry. I mean, it was very small by market capitalization, a fraction of what it is today. You know, it's gone up to over $2 trillion. But I mean, we're talking something that is much, much smaller. And so a recognition that this industry exists and that it does, po you know, both has promise from a innovation standpoint, but also poses legitimate money laundering concerns. I think it's just a very important proposition that the regulator with its limited resources would go to the effort to publish this guidance. And then too, just as a general proposition, it said that yes, these the rules that apply to financial institutions, even though this may be a new financial product or service or may not be, 
um, there's still obligations if it does meet the activities requirements. I mean, it's, it's a technology neutral standard that both the Treasury Department and other regulators have put out that says, it doesn't matter if you're a new technology, if you're engaging in certain activities, certain conduct of money transmission that requires you to be licensed by FinCEN, you need to be licensed by FinCEN, or, or uh, you, know, you need to register with FinCEN um, if you're engaged in, in those types of activities. So I think that's, that's a uh, important way that, that FinCEN articulated that it's not trying to pick winners and losers in the market. And I think that's been a very consistent bipartisan policy of the US government across, uh, you know, across much of the past decade. And you mentioned the Ripple case. What happened there? Yeah, it was an enforcement action. So, you know, one, I think, again, this general proposition that FinCEN, you know, went uh, to investigate and inf- take an enforcement action against a entity operating in the cryptocurrency space, um, which, again, shows the importance of it. Again, limited resources covering all financial institutions and not just banks, but think casinos, think broker dealers, think, you know, uh, money transmitters like Western Union. So, with this limited resource, FinCEN made a made a enforcement priority to address an early, uh, early uh, fintech, early uh, cryptocurrency player, and so they, it was generally what FinCEN can enforce for is for AML deficiencies. So they didn't have an appropriate AML uh, framework in place, and so they identified some some deficiencies there. Within the AML context, we're we're looking at regulators who are making sure that institutions are are doing their job in in stopping or not facilitating money laundering. But maybe you can just share an example in the crypto world where uh, the run someone who's running a platform actually served jail time for money laundering. Yes. Yeah, so so I, I come from the Treasury Department. I have the utmost respect for my Justice Department colleagues. And I think these civil and criminal tools, when combined effectively together, are really powerful. I think one thing that we're seeing though, and I think this is a testament to the US legal regulatory and compliance regime from industry, is that there haven't been a lot of targets in the US. I mean, I think you know th- there are ways to improve the US legal and regulatory regime, but the the foundations are very strong. The the principles that you know US government will not tolerate money laundering and terrorism financing in the US is is pretty well abided by through industry. And so there aren't a lot of examples of US to US-based activity. Where this generally comes into play is in third jurisdictions overseas, generally lightly regulated places, uh, think like Russia, where you know where they allow illicit activity to thrive with either the explicit or tacit permission of the government and sometimes even its security services. And so in a few instances, the U.S., through strong international cooperation, has been able to detain, arrest, and prosecute individuals. I mean, I think there was one example of a um, mixer called uh, Bitfog where a, um, in 2021, the, uh, I believe a Russian-Swedish national was arrested um, for money laundering activities and operating an unlicensed money, uh, money transmitter. And so we have some, some data points where the federal government has taken action. You mentioned the term a mixer. What is, you know, that, we're not talking about a, a DJ, we're talking about a financial uh, mixer. What does that mean? Yeah, exactly. So this is the uh, the use of a intermediary service to obfuscate uh, cryptocurrency funds um, from their original owners and to uh, make them both for privacy, re- legitimate privacy reasons, but also for illicit money laundering reasons to distance the funds um, from their origins and kind of repackage them 
through a private pool of other funds to commingle them and then put them back out into the marketplace, making them appear less associated with their original uh, owners. Crypto assets and cryptocurrencies by nature, by definition, are not fiat currencies. They're not only for Americans or only for uh, Chinese. They're international. So how does the enforcement, how does the international aspect of enforcement bear out when it comes to money laundering? Yeah, so there's, I, I think the record is mixed and there's certainly jurisdictions around the world that are weaker in their legal regulatory and enforcement regimes. But there's a way to address that. And that is the Financial Action Task Force, which is this, or called FATF, which is this intergovernmental standard setting body of 38 countries. And then they have regional affiliates around the world of, of mostly wealthy, wealthy 38 countries um, and, and two regional organizations, the EU and Gulf Cooperation Council. And so what they do is they put together a set of uh, recommendations, uh, 40 of them, for member countries and really for the world to integrate into their domestic legal regimes. And this is a really important forcing function um, to get non-compliant jurisdictions to improve their AML capabilities within each country. But it's really incumbent upon each country to uh, implement those those laws and regulations under their own, own regimes. And then they have an enforcement mechanism, which is a peer review process that each member countries, groups of member countries, review their other uh, members for uh, compliance and for adequacy for uh, implementation of these recommendations. And within the crypto space, you know, so, so the crypto ecosystem, it can um, thrive when there's a high degree of compliance but also is really pulled down in weaker jurisdictions when there isn't that same level of regulatory scrutiny, of compliance, of, of uh, legal enforcement. So this is a naming and shaming uh, tool? Yeah, but on steroids. I mean, with real practical implications that you know, this increases the cost of uh, tr uh, transacting or borrowing across jurisdictions if you're put on. They also have the ability to put uh, countries on a so-called gray list, um, kind of a, a, a bad list. And so countries on that list are uh, deficient in their AML requirements. And, and that imposes real business costs um, to industries in those countries and to uh, everyday people in those countries. Well, yeah, what's an example of a cost for, for being put on the, the gray list? Yeah, so, uh, so for instance, um, Turkey was in the, is in the middle of a financial crisis and they were recently put back on the gray list. And so it makes uh, borrowing costs higher. It, it increases compliance obligations for banks in other countries when reviewing or considering transactions to go into or out of Turkey. So there, that's an additional cost of compliance. Uh, they may charge higher fees or higher interest rates to, to, lend or, um, to lend to borrowers in those countries, for instance, based on the country risk created by insufficient AML regime. So this is across the financial sector. This isn't crypto specific. Exactly. It's not crypto specific. But one of the recommendations, and it's called Recommendation 16, is a um, set of standards to provide information when a bank or financial institution makes cross-border wire transfers. And so you have to say, Adam, Alex, I'm sending money to Joel in another country, and my bank will take certain information about Alex to transmit to Joel's, to your bank, so that that information car carries with it. Um, it's, so, it's called the so-called travel rule. And cryptocurrency companies and cryptocurrency protocols um, have had a lot of opposition to this because it is designed essentially for traditional financial activity 
and is not necessarily fit for the way and the mechanics or the technological underpinnings of crypto transactions. And so there's been a lot of uh, calls for clarification of this so-called travel rule. And as they apply to, again, we're using a lot of acronyms and a lot of, of lingo here, but the FATF calls crypto companies virtual asset service providers or VASPs. They call crypto virtual assets, VA. And so there's been uh, you know, changes to and tailored guidance for how cryptocurrencies can uh, comply with the travel rule. And that was in 2019, most recently updated in the fall. But you know, to, to the question, I think where we're going with this is that cryptocurrency companies are really still struggling to comply. FATF takes the position that it is like the US government, technology neutral, and they wanna go after certain activities. But there is some, some inherent tension there between what is kind of the consensus sufficient activity by traditional financial institutions for providing this information and what crypto companies can and are able to provide, particularly in the context of pseudo-anonymous transactional activity. We spoke a bit about cryptocurrencies. Uh, part of its past was, was, was quite shady in the sense that its first business use case, perhaps, was Silk Road. But it was founded by a lot of idealists, perhaps libertarian idealists, who wanted to create uh, a structure without government control. So there's, you know, I want to make a distinction between privacy or secrecy versus uh, illicit behavior. If I wanted to create a product that was by definition anonymous, you, know, you mentioned Monero, you mentioned a few of the other private coins, but let's say I wanted to create um, a platform that would take a transaction and and basically hide it or or disis, you know remove it from its original uh, wallet identifier. Would I then be looking for a visit from from the federal government? Would I then expect you know uh, an email or a knock on the door from from the 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 good folks at FinCEN? I don't think that there's a policy imperative to you know to stifle innovation. Or I think there and then there's a lot of investment in financial privacy in the US and globally, um, and particularly you know, in, in other developed jurisdictions. So I, I think people take privacy very seriously. It comes to a question about to what ends, for what purpose. I, I don't have a great example to what you were describing. Um, you know, I think that you and I can, again, go exchange a certain, up to a certain amount of money without having to register with the government. Um, but you know, if you start to engage in larger transactional activity, and then you start to do that on behalf of others, then this starts to look like traditional financial activity, in which case there's a technology neutral regulatory regime in place. If again, for one-off transactions, for peer-to-peer -peer transactions, I, I don't see the same level of uh, scrutiny or concern from the government. I mean, it exists, but the same level as if you are engaged in kind of commercial dealings or working on behalf of others, and particularly to facilitate money laundering, because this is where it tends to go, is, is for the purposes of money laundering, for the other kind of illicit purposes, um, is at least where the, the data shows that, that people um, seek, seek out these types of services. Um, but I, I think that there is a very real call for privacy enhancing technologies. Um, but then the other reality is that most of the people, not just this you know, libertarian um, vision of it, 
But I think at a practical level, the overwhelming majority, and I don't have the exact numbers, but I think you know, well north of 90 plus percent of all crypto transactions occur through exchanges. So there is a centralizing feature, not too dissimilar from a broker or from a bank, where people interact with the crypto ecosystem. And for a variety of, of I mean, almost all legitimate reasons, but just a variety of practical reasons they're doing that. So, you know, again, for that same reason we talked about remembering our our passwords, <laughs> ensuring we have adequate cybersecurity. I mean, I think a lot of people do at the end of the day want to outsource certain functionality for financial uh, transactions so that they're not owning all of the risks associated with digital transactions. You mentioned layering in your earlier definition of money laundering. And I imagine we're going to see cryptocurrency as one of the layers, you know, perhaps you're you're moving it through a shell company, which will then, you know, purchase some crypto assets and so on. Uh, we've seen the show Ozark, but how does that fit in? Is this just creating a whole nother layer of complexity where you know, the resources that would be needed to track funds are becoming more and more advanced? I think that's a great observation. And I think that is a real risk that needs to be addressed by both uh, financial institutions, when they are interacting with the crypto ecosystem, you know they have a gatekeeping role and they have a, a host of legal responsibilities, as well as very sophisticated resources to address their risk. And then also regulators and law enforcement to to manage that risk. And so I think that's absolutely right that cryptocurrencies can be used uh, as part of the money laundering uh, chain or, or ecosystem. Um, again, but it gets to some some questions about costs, about risks to um, those seeking to launder money about putting your funds out for a tremendous deal of public scrutiny uh, that we talked about through this public, you know, append uh, only databases that exist, decentralized databases. Um, and so that's a risk that money launderers also need to entertain, um, that they are, you know, exposing a lot of their financial information to public scrutiny. Um, but, but definitely exists. And I think also in the context of Russia sanctions evasion, these, you know, crypto can be used as part of broader uh, financial transactional activity, uh, up to and including sanctions evasion or, or money laundering. So I think we need to recognize those risks, uh, appropriately address those risks and manage those risks. Alex, how about when nations make Bitcoin legal tender? You know, uh, Central African Republic, I believe El Salvador have made Bitcoin uh, currency. Does that complicate the money laundering, anti-money laundering efforts in any way? I don't think so. I think it will remain to be seen how long these countries uh, keep it as legal tender. Also, you know, these are very distressed jurisdictions, uh, economically, financially. And so I, I think we're not at a place of widespread adoption uh, as, as legal tender. Two out of 180 plus countries around the world, um, you know, we're, we're not reaching critical mass yet. I think it's worth observing. Um, but I, I don't think that changes the the change to legal tender status makes it different. I mean, again, I think both the technology neutral approach to U.S. international laws and regulations, um, you know, it, it shouldn't be different than any other asset, any other currency. Um, you know, if you you can't, there's no difference in laundering euros or dollars for the most part. Uh, it's just kind of a simpler example. And so, if, if Bitcoin is put into that basket of fiat currencies. I don't think it, it makes the and there, there may be some practical legal differences depending on jurisdictions. But um, for the, the enterprise of AML compliance, I don't think it makes a, a major difference at this time. 
Alex, we've been talking about money laundering and anti-money laundering, but let's talk about another area of regulation of the financial industry, of the financial sector, which is sanctions related. This is adding another layer for for crypto exchanges and and for the crypto ecosystem at at large. Yeah, and so I think there's a lot of misperceptions or misunderstandings in this space. AML, anti-money laundering, generally are requirements only for covered financial institutions. And so those are banks, those are broker dealers, uh, money transmitters like Western Union. However, and that's a small part of the economy, that's a handful of known businesses around the US. However, sanctions administered by OFAC, the Office of Foreign Assets Control at the US Treasury, applies to all US persons and even some non-US persons. And so these sanctions compliance obligations apply to all Americans and all American businesses, which is a much, much larger universe. And so even if a project or entity or individual operating in the crypto space says, I don't think I am subject to AML laws and and regulatory obligations, I don't abide by those uh, requirements, you still have sanctions obligations regardless of your opinions about where you fall within the AML uh, ecosystem. And so that's an important uh, issue in that OFAC, the regulator, has has really keyed in on and conducted an extensive amount of outreach to make sure that people know that they are subject to OFAC obligations if they are a U.S. person, so that's a U.S. citizen or, or company. And OFAC has taken public outreach steps, including by publishing guidance in 2021, specifically tailored to the virtual currency industry. And so with that, they they recognize that there may be some particular facts and circumstances or unique circumstances to the crypto industry, but also is, again, a positive gesture, recognizing the importance of an emerging relevance of the cryptocurrency industry. The other side is that OFAC has taken enforcement actions and has designated uh, entities within the cryptocurrency industry. And so they've gone after several individuals, including a couple of Chinese nationals, for facilitating North Korean uh, sanctions uh, in crypto uh, in response to cryptocurrency hacks. And then for the first time in September 2021, OFAC sanctioned a exchange, a crypto exchange called SUEX, and then later designated CHATX, uh, a, a related exchange, for facilitating ransomware attacks uh, against US companies and US individuals. And so that was a major uh, new development and, you know, again, hand in hand, they have the, the ability to provide compliance resources, but then are also targeting individuals and entities uh, that are abusing the crypto ecosystem. And then most recently, this is in April of 2022, OFAC for the first time designated a cryptocurrency mining company called BitRiver, which is headquartered in Switzerland, but is essentially a Russian cryptocurrency mining operation. Um, to address sanctions evasion risks posed by Russia's expanded invasion of Ukraine. So these are steps that OFAC, the regulator, has taken. And then they also, in coordination uh, with the Department of Justice, went after an American citizen, uh, this man named Virgil Griffiths, who had provided material support to North Korea to help them use and understand cryptocurrencies for sanctions evasion purposes. And uh, Griffiths was recently sentenced to a multi-year prison term um, by by federal prosecutors and a, and a federal judge. Wow. So essentially he gave a, a course in money laundering and, and had jail time as a result? Yep. He, he attended a conference in North Korea um, after being told not to attend the conference in North Korea. 
Well, if I'm ever advised not to attend a conference in North Korea, I will certainly comply. That that truly makes sense. You mentioned the this critical distinction between anti-money laundering and anti-sanctions violation uh, law, which is that it applies to basically any American person. Uh, could you give a, a concrete example? Would this be would this apply, for example, to a video game company that decided to issue tokens and needed to avoid purchases from Iran or Russia as a result? That's a good a good question. So generally, and there's uh, over several dozen sanctions programs, and each one's a little bit different. But as a general proposition, the OFAC sanctions compliance obligations for American citizens. Uh, prohibits transactions or dealings with designated entities. And also those designated entities can include entire jurisdictions. So those are called um, you know, full, full country uh, sanctions programs. Uh, and so, in, for instance, in Iran or Syria or North Korea, uh, there's a you know, general prohibition for engaging in transactions or dealings in that country, with some exceptions, particularly for humanitarian reasons, to provision food, medicine, essential basic human needs and other things into those places. So the, the example, you know, I think each, each one would be a little bit different, um, but if you are a US gaming company and you are, uh, soli- uh, you are soliciting business in Iran and, and selling coins in Iran, um, that would likely, you know, I don't wanna give, give a definitive statement, but um, that would be something that would likely um, abut OFAC sanctions compliance obligations and may violate sanctions. Which probably has a lot of uh, a lot of companies in the crypto space uh, speaking to legal counsel or, or, or seeking guidance. Yeah, absolutely, and, and there are tools for that. And OFAC has come out with uh, some of that specific guidance about IP blocking software, and then ways to actually identify when people are seeking to evade IP detection um, for certain jurisdictions, including through VPNs or virtual private networks. Um, where this really does become tricky, though, is places like. Luhansk and Donetsk in eastern Ukraine, where Ukraine as a country is is not subject to sanctions. In fact, they're an ally of ours, but there are certain breakaway regions within that country that are subject to more comprehensive sanctions. And so I know that's creating a lot of headaches um, in the legal community and for for companies around the world seeking to do the right thing, but really having a hard time complying um, with with new and emerging sanctions obligations. It seems incredibly uh, challenging, even for well-intentioned actors. Absolutely, no, and, and that's the challenge. OFAC has a civil uh, civil strict liability standard for enforcement, although it does have uh, pretty articulated guidance about its enforcement guidelines and how it approaches its enforcement priorities. That is designed to 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 be reasonable. It puts a priority on voluntary self-disclosure. If you do, if a company or an individual finds themselves in violation. Um, and, and has a variety of ways to mitigate potential assessments or, or violations. For those who are earning Sealy M. Sealy credit for this course, the code is 51115. Again, that's 51115. And now back to the interview. Alex, cryptocurrencies are a pretty sophisticated tool. I mean, it's a modern technology, distributed ledger, blockchain. I was reading in a recent Bloomberg piece that you commented on that it can also be paired with a very traditional method of money exchange, 
called the Hawala Network. Uh, perhaps you could explain. The situation described what millions are going through under the Taliban's disastrous rule in Afghanistan right now, and that many Afghans are desperate to keep their assets away from the Taliban. And so what they're doing is they're melding this traditional financial mechanism, Hawala, which is a money transfer service, uh, essentially a peer-to-peer -peer or broker-to-broker -broker money transfer service with cryptocurrencies, uh, and particularly stable coins. And these are coins or, or tokens that are uh, roughly pegged to um, fiat currencies, such as the US dollar, uh, as a way to hedge against growing uncertainty and economic instability in the country due to the Taliban's mismanagement. And so I think it's a really powerful example of how new technological tools can be used to help those in need, um, particularly in distressed economies. Um, although, you know, again, I don't want to understate the, the sanctions and money laundering risks attendant to that as well. Um, but the problem is that the Taliban is a sanctioned entity. Uh, they are designated by the UN, US, EU, many other jurisdictions around the world. And so they, and they also run a central bank now. So it, it's a very complicated, sordid situation. And so I think it's completely reasonable and, and expected that everyday Afghans, you know, who despise the Taliban regime are finding creative ways to uh, keep their money away from the Taliban and protect their assets. And, you know, maybe this is a question for another scholar, but is money laundering to evade the Taliban, uh, to evade the Taliban, not a violation of U.S. law because the Taliban is identified as a, a, a illegitimate government? The question you pose creates very serious issues for exploration about what is it? We don't, we don't have an example of this, that a designated terrorist group has taken over a jurisdiction and controlled their central bank. This is, this is a very live issue um, that is being uh, reviewed at, at you know, the highest levels of the U.S. government, uh, within the U.S. courts, uh, and elsewhere to, to manage that risk appropriately. And so th this, this is the, the challenge, but also you know, what, what crypto can provide. And thinking in other jurisdictions like Turkey that has rampant inflation and economic distress, the situation in Ukraine right now, uh, with individuals seeking to, to hedge against instability. We are seeing you know, take up of crypto assets, uh, particularly those pegged to, to fiat currency, stable, more stable US fiat, uh, fiat currencies like the US dollar um, as a way for, for hedging activity to occur. Alex, before we let you go, maybe we could talk about what you see coming down the pipeline in terms of new regulation or, or gaps in regulation. Uh, why don't you... Why don't you take us into the future a bit? Yeah, so the regulatory space, both in the U.S. and internationally, is incredibly dynamic right now. I think we're in a very early stage of understanding how cryptocurrencies, digital assets are going to be regulated more generally. We focused heavily on AML and a little bit on sanctions today, but there are many, many other questions uh, about consumer protection, about investor protection, about climate and sustainability, about market integrity that regulators like the SEC, CFTC, OCC, Federal Reserve, and others are dealing with. Congress has a critical role to play here. And to its credit, the Biden administration issued an executive order in March outlining its path to better understanding the opportunities and challenges, including national security challenges, posed by digital assets more generally. 
And so that's just the U.S. Also, given our you know, fascinating federal system, the states have a critical role to play, and we're seeing interesting regulatory exploration at the state level, including by New York State, Wyoming, California, other jurisdictions, about how to regulate comprehensively digital assets. And then you know, partners around the world, like the EU, are really grappling right now. The UK is really grappling with what their regulatory and legal regimes are going to look like by balancing these different competing, often competing um, priorities. And so we're, we're in a really fascinating space and you know, it is moving incredibly quickly. So uh, those are just some of the general issue spots that we're in a, a period of dynamic change right now. Alex, do I have it right that we now live under a regime where innovators have to be taking responsibility, not just for the best case use cases of their product, but also to avoid the criminal misuse of their innovations? Yeah, and so you know, I think we're in this very dynamic place and space within the financial services uh, industry that we are reconciling some competing priorities. And while still not giving up on some fundamental responsibilities. And so I think that there has been this acknowledgement that the financial industry and any participant in any meaningful way has legal obligations to protect broader public policy interests, to combat money laundering, terrorism financing, other forms of financial crime like tax evasion. And so this is the increasing regime that has developed over the past 50 years, over the past three administrations, I think in a very bipartisan fashion, there's been this recognition or coalescing around this concept of responsible innovation. That means that the US government as a bipartisan policy priority wants to support the US as a leader in innovation for financial services. Um, And I think we've demonstrated that. I mean, you know, Western Union over a hundred years ago was a you know, amazing financial technology that revolutionized how financial information was was transacted. And, you know, it's been evolving ever since then. ATMs, mobile banking, these other, you know, really game-changing innovations have continued to refine how people, how citizens, and how people around the world interact with the financial system. But it can also be used for for bad activities. Um, And so we've seen that in, in spades. And so figuring out what is that appropriate balance? What are the appropriate obligations on industry? In particular, industry is really frustrated with the costs and burdens of compliance with some of these laws from the 1970s. They're inherently analog. As we move to much more digital ways of operating, and I think we're entering some really, really fascinating space on questions of digital identity and how we can represent ourselves appropriately to appropriate stakeholders for appropriate reasons to reduce costs, to reduce friction, to allow for more commercial activity. And then also, you know, we didn't talk about this as much, but to really address financial exclusion problems that, that many Americans don't have bank accounts, they are underbanked, that they don't have enough uh, financial services that they actually need. And that is multiplied overseas where, where many people don't have basic access to, to financial services. And so what is the value of technology what is the value of these new, these new cryptocurrencies, digital assets more generally, or new platforms that can hopefully bring in more people into the financial system that can more efficiently 
move value and capital around the world. I think that's a really amazing challenge that we are all embarking on right now. And you know, I think that there are very legitimate concerns in both raised by those in government and outside of government that the regulations have not kept pace with the technological innovation. And so that's where I think a lot of the change is being addressed. And again, to Congress and to Treasury and FinCEN and, and the executive's credit, there have been a lot of strides taken to improve public-private partnerships, to improve information sharing, and to improve rulemaking to make the burdens and the obligations incumbent on financial institutions and others more responsive to the needs of law enforcement, more responsive to the needs of government, and also recognizing how to effectively manage these sometimes competing priorities. Alex Zerden is a former Treasury official and the founder of Capital Peak Strategies. Alex, thanks for the time today. Joel, thank you so much for having me. For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksOnLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksOnLaw.com slash podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting-edge interviews on the Talks on Law MCLE podcast.